faithfulness. Isaiah 53, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who hath declared his his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The title of the message this morning, Isaiah 53, Our Suffering Savior. Our Suffering Savior. Father, we come into thy presence this morning. Lord, beholding one of the great prophetic chapters in all of the Bible that speaks so vividly of your coming and of your life and all of its suffering, all of the difficulties that you would face. We have the advantage of knowing the rest of the story. Isaiah wrote this many, many years before you would come. We can look back and we can see how you fulfilled all of these things. And Lord, by our knowledge of these things and our acknowledgement of these things, we can be justified. Lord, help us as we preach your word this morning. Fill us with your spirit. Empty us of all, all of the cares and the anxieties of this world and of this life. Help us to enter into your presence this morning in a very real way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One sign that the Bible truly is God's word are the numerous prophecies that many of them written hundreds of years before their fulfillment, and yet they're written with such precision and such accuracy and many respects with such specificity. 
The prophecies are rarely of a general nature, but are usually quite uh, specific, and such is the case with Isaiah 53. In this great chapter of the Bible, we see perhaps the most vivid and clear prophetic picture of the coming Messiah. Uh, This prophecy is uh, sort of, in some respects, it's sort of counterintuitive as it is, it is almost to be unbelievable. In fact, Isaiah acknowledges that. He, he, he writes about that truth in the, very first, in the very first verse where he says, who have believed our report? Uh, in other words, it's almost like I'm getting ready to tell you something and you're not going to believe what you're going to hear. Uh, this, is, this is sort of out there just a little bit. Uh, you know, the Jews had enjoyed really a, a measure of invincibility as God's chosen people. They had, you know this, they had no business um, uh, marching out of Egypt as free people. Uh, That that should never have happened, and yet it did. We think to ourselves, well, they had no chance of conquering Canaan, a land full of giants and fortified, impenetrable cities, and yet we know the story. We know that God gave them that land. They had no hope of ever enjoying the glory and the prosperity of Solomon's magnificent reign. And yet, and yet we read in the scriptures of just how amazing the kingdom was at that point in time in history. None of these should have been realities. None of these should have happened. But, but they, they were realities through God's hand of abundant blessing upon them. And, and, and due to such a, a rich heritage, the Jews, um, the Jews sort of arrived at a superiority in their mind um, and in their thinking that did not always match their present state or condition. Therefore, talk of a suffering Messiah, a suffering Savior, did not really much align with the Jews' way of thinking. They they, they really, to be frank, they like their leaders to be legendary. They, they like their leaders to, to have done incredible things, to conquer enemies and to subdue people that were under them. And, and, and they like the supernatural way that God often used these individuals. And so, and, and so to look at a, a passage of scripture like this and to say, hey, here is your savior, here is your Messiah. There, there's no form nor comeliness that you're going to desire him and and you're going to hide as it were your faces from him and and he is going to suffer and he is going to be bruised and he is going to go through such agony uh, the previous chapter talks about the fact that his visage is so marred as to not even resemble that of a, of a man and, and the jews would read a passage like this and they would say no thanks we're not interested in that Give us more, give us more Samsons who slew a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. Give us more Davids who marched out into the valley of Elah and held a, a, a couple, five small stones in his hand and he slew a giant. Give us more Joshuas who marched around the city of Jericho and, and they shouted and the walls came tumbling down. But we want no part. We want, we want nothing to do with a suffering Messiah, a suffering Savior. We're not interested in that. Who hath believed our report? No, this, this prophecy did not much align with the Jews' way of thinking. This, this description of a Messiah, of a Savior, of a leader in their mind was, was not sufficient. Interestingly enough, this prophecy was written 700 years before its fulfillment. And, 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 and really, as we read it, it's, it's sort of written in the past tense. I mean, if you, if you read it, it's sort of written in that, uh, in that way. And, and it's almost as if, 
It's almost as if everything that Christ was going to do, he had already done. And, and that they're sort of looking back on it and, 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 they're, and, they're, and, they're, and they're saying how, how they received him and how they, uh, how they handled what he had done for them and what he had done. But all of it is in, in, in some respects, it's in the past tense. Though the Jews of Christ's day received him not, according to John 1.11, and though the Jews of even today still largely dismiss him as illegitimate and as a blasphemer, I want you to know that there is coming a day in which the Jewish people will finally accept and finally acknowledge him for who he really is as a savior, as a redeemer, and as a Lord. Today it is primarily Gentiles who see him as these things, and, and we must acknowledge that very few see him in this way, even among the Gentiles. Most, most people continue to see him as the Jews have Throughout history, they have a difficult time believing in him as Savior. But can I say this? Listen, if something is true, it does not cease to be true simply because a vast majority of people reject it or do not believe it. In other words, we, we like, to, we lo, we like to, be, to side with the majority. We like to, uh, to, to be on the side of, of the vast majority of people. Everybody thinks the way that I think, and everybody believes what I believe. But can I just tell you something? Listen, truth is not contingent upon whether everybody accepts it or not. Truth is truth regardless of those things. And so as we think about who the Bible proclaims Jesus to be, I cannot help that we live in a culture and in a society who looks at Jesus and, 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 and does not believe in him to be a savior that looks at self and says, well, I can do enough good works and I can go to church enough times and I can take communion enough times and I can be baptized in order to save myself. Listen, just because the world believes that doesn't make it true. And just because the world rejects what the Bible teaches us about Jesus Christ doesn't mean that it's false either. The Bible reveals to us a suffering Savior. And I want to explore our suffering Savior this morning. I want to share three specific truths that I find woven throughout this particular chapter. And number one, I'd like for you to consider with me about our suffering Savior, that his suffering was not limited to the last week of his life. As we read this chapter, we discover of Christ's life, that it was a, a life that experienced difficulty and suffering throughout. It was not just a 168-hour period in which he endured suffering and agony. We often talk of Christ's life and we consider the final week as being known as the Passion Week. We're talking about between the Sunday of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding upon the, the donkey and the Sunday of his resurrection, we discover six days of, of agony and six days of suffering. In those six days, we find him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. In those six days, we discover that he is betrayed by one of his own, a man by the name of Judas. We discover that he is arrested at the hands of the Roman authorities. We discover that one of his closest disciples denies him three separate times during this week. We, we, we continue down this road of this Passion Week and we find that, he's a, uh, that, that, that he, is, uh, he, is, he suffers and he's tortured and he's beaten mercilessly at the hands of the, uh, of, the, of the Jews, first of all the Sanhedrin, and then also at the hands of the Romans underneath Pilate and underneath Herod. And we discover a little bit 
further in this week, his crucifixion in which he hangs between two thieves and we read of his death and we read of his burial. But can I say that to get a true understanding of our suffering Savior, we must, we must look deeper than just the final week of his life. The word of God reveals that his suffering was not at all, was not at all limited to the final week. The story of Christ reveals his humility and his suffering, listen, from his earliest days on this earth to the very end. For instance, I share with you, the Bible teaches us that he was born in lowly Bethlehem. He was born in lowly Bethlehem. The Bible says in Micah 5 and verse number 2, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. I want you to key in on that little phrase, though thou be little among the thousands. Bethlehem was a sleepy, insignificant town, save for the fact that it was the home of a man by the name of David. When Christ's parents arrived there, uh, having been directed there because of the taxing that was going on in the days of Caesar Augustus, the Bible tells us that when the, by the time they arrived, more than likely because his mother was great with child, they were not able to travel as fast as everyone else was. And by the time they got there, there was no place for them to stay. There was no room for them in the inn of Bethlehem, and they were, they were forced to take up residence in a stable, in a place in which the animals would have, would have slept and would have eaten and would have lived their lives. That was the place in which his parents stayed those nights that they were, those first nights they were in Bethlehem. And it was in that place, in that lowly, insignificant town, in a, in a stable made for animals that Jesus Christ was born into this world. His suffering, listen, his suffering was not just confined to the last week of his life, but he was born in this lowly place called Bethlehem. But notice, secondly, he was raised in a place called Nazareth. He was raised in a city called Nazareth. John chapter number one, as Jesus is bursting onto the scene around the age of 30, word is beginning to spread. We think we might have found the Messiah. We think the promised one is here. Somebody walks up to a man by the name of Nathaniel. They said, he's over there. That's him. That's the Messiah. And Nathaniel asks a question. He says, well, where's he, where's he from? I know the prophecies. Where, where is he from? And, and, and he proclaims, he says, well, he's from, he's from the city of Nazareth, which leads to Nathaniel's comment in John chapter 1 and verse number 46. Where he asks the question, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? He was born in lowly Bethlehem, but he was raised in this city called Nazareth. This city was, was so little thought of and was so little known that it was hard to fathom any person of significance, any person of accomplishment coming from such a lowly, insignificant place. And yet that was the home in which, in the city in which he was raised. But notice thirdly, not only was he born in lowly Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth, but he was the son of a carpenter. Bible says in Matthew chapter 13 that Jesus had come into his own country and he's teaching in the synagogue and he's astounding them with his words and, and with his teaching. The Bible says that they were astonished and said, Matthew 13, 54, whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? 
Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Christ perceived father and understand we, we would say that because Joseph was not his real father. Jesus was born of a virgin. But his perceived father was a, he was a tradesman. He was, he was just a carpenter. He worked with his hands to, to, to build things and to, and to create things in order to support his family. He was not a doctor. He was not a, a lawyer. He was not a politician or some successful individual, at least by the world standards at this point in time. And because of what his father did it, to them, it was inconceivable that Jesus Christ could ever amount to much more than whatever his perceived father was. His dad's a carpenter. They pretty much are probably living in, in poverty. Therefore, he's probably going to be a carpenter too. And he's probably never going to rise to be much more than what his father was. The Bible also tells us that he did not have a consistent home to sleep in. In Matthew 8 and verse number 20, Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes. And the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And Jesus admitted that in some respects he was lower than some, even in the animal kingdom. I mean, after all, the bird has a nest to fly to that is theirs. The fox has a, has a den or has a hole to rest in that is his. But Christ had nowhere, he had nowhere to pillow his head consistently each night. He was completely and totally dependent upon his father. I'm talking about his heavenly father to meet his needs each and every day. And can I tell you that as we read verses 2 and 3 of this particular chapter, we discover the same things to be true. And can I say that contrary to the paintings and the designs of men, Christ wore no sacred halo denoting his deity. In appearance, he displayed no royal signs. His life was hard, and it was difficult from the very beginning. He did not live in a castle, nor did he wear a regal robe. He was not distinguishable from the rest of the Jewish men around him in physical appearance. He did not ride in a golden chariot. He did not hold a royal scepter. He did not command an accompanying army. And yet, in spite of these things, he is still the Messiah. He is still the Savior. He is still the King of kings and Lord of lords. No matter, listen, no matter how he appears to be, no matter what he looks like in this earthly life and in this earthly manifestation and in this earthly presence, his suffering was not limited to the last week of his life. No, in reality, his life was hard from day one, every step of the way. But we notice a second thought as we continue through this particular chapter. It literally jumps off the page at us, and that is this. Number two, his suffering was not on account of his own sin. His suffering in this life, the things that he endured, was not on account of his own sin or of the things that he did wrong. We read of this and learn of this in verses four through verse number nine. And we must understand a, a key truth that is brought out in the pages of Scripture. And that key truth is this, that the wages of sin is death. The Bible tells us that very clearly in Romans 6 and verse number 23. That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, the Bible is very clear that sin brings death. God warned Adam uh, that disobedience there in the garden would bring death, and it certainly did, though Satan denied it vigorously. You, you'll not surely die. 
And yet that's exactly what happened. The Bible is also clear that every man dies for his own sins and his own transgressions. Ezekiel 18 and verse number 4, the Bible says, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. And then God says this, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Well, that's all of us. All of us are sinners. The Bible says in Ezekiel 18 and verse number 20, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So understand, listen, there is a clear theme that is taught throughout Scripture, and that is this, that the wages of sin is death. And yet as we come to Isaiah 53, we discover, number two, that Christ, the sinless one, that he suffered an unimaginable death. Christ, the sinless one, suffered an unimaginable death. We read of that in verses 4 through 9. He hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was taken as a lamb before her shearers is dumb, taken as a lamb to the slaughter, taken from prison and from judgment, cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of my will. Was he stricken? He made his grave with the wicked. I mean, we see it over and over and over again that Jesus Christ, the sinless one, suffered an unimaginable death. How do we know he was sinless? Well, the Bible tells us he was. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 15 Speaking of Christ, the Bible says, For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Look at those last three words. Yet without sin. Your Savior, my Savior, Jesus Christ, he had no sin. He had no sin. Yet without sin. Think of that. Think of that. I go, I go maybe 15, 20 minutes without sin. And you're chuckling but you're the same way. We're all the same. We're all sinners by nature, losing our temper, getting angry, perhaps thinking thoughts that ought never to enter into our minds, perhaps being deceitful, trying to manipulate or coerce the various people or circumstances of our lives. Jesus Christ lived his entire life and was without sin. Oh, he was tempted in all of these, these areas. Oh, he had, a, he had a brother just like I had a brother. Much of my sin as a boy was due to my brothers. And I would probably, they would probably say that much of theirs was due to me as well. Jesus had brothers. In fact, we just read of them a moment ago there in Matthew chapter number 13. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says he was without sin. Oh, you know there were days in which the brothers were at one another and trying to maybe, you know, frustrate him. He had parents that were imperfect as well, and I'm sure there were some frustrations there. And yet Jesus Christ, the sinless one. The griefs, the Bible says, that he bore, they were my griefs. The sorrows that he carried, they were my sorrows. The transgressions that he was wounded for, those were my transgressions. The iniquities that he was bruised for were my, my iniquities. He took my stripes. 
and my chastisement. Listen, if the wages of sin is death and Christ was the sinless son of God, then it would stand to reason that he should not have died He should not have had to die. He should have been able to bypass all of that because he had no sin. Which leads us to wonder, well then, is there some form of inconsistency in the Bible? Is there some form of error here? Have we come to to, to the place where we look at it and we say, aha, we see the Bible is not God's word because it is not true in this instance. Because if Jesus was truly sinless, then he should not have had to die. Therefore, one of two things is true. Either the Bible is false, or Jesus was a sinner. Or, or according to Isaiah 53, there's another thought. And that other thought is this, that Jesus did not die for his own sins, but he died for my sins. And he died for your sins. That is the teaching of Scripture. Christ did die, and it is further clear that his death was unimaginably painful and difficult. Whose sins did he die for if he had no sin? And the wages of sin is death. Who is it that he's hanging on that cross for? Isaiah makes it clear that his suffering was not, it was not on account of his own sin, and, but it was, a, it was on account of my sin and my wrongdoing. Would you hold your place in Isaiah 53 and would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3? Because Peter writes here under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God and he writes it about as succinctly and about as beautifully as it could ever be written. 1 Peter chapter number 3, and would you allow your eyes to fall on verse number 18, where the Bible says these words, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. The just, that's him. For the unjust, that's me. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Jesus Christ, oh, he did, he did die. And he died an unimaginably horrible death. But, but Peter writes, and Isaiah writes, that he did, not, he did not do this on account of his own sin. No, no, he was completely just. He was completely righteous. In, instead, listen, his death was on account of the unjust. It was on account of the unrighteous. That Jesus, listen, Jesus suffered. He bled. He died. He hung in your place. He hung in my place. No, no, Jesus did not suffer. The suffering the Savior, the suffering Messiah, he did not suffer on account of his own sin, but he suffered on account of my sin and of your sin. We're so often tempted to excuse our sin, aren't we? I find that I have a lot of problems with the sins of others. The sins of others drive me crazy. You know, I look at certain people and I think to myself, you know, why, why you got to be like that? Why you got to live like that? You know, what is wrong with you? Get your act together. And yet at the same time, at the same time, I'm sinning in my own way and I'm, I'm excusing it and I'm allowing it and I'm thinking it's really not that big of a deal. I find that my hatred for the sin of others is so much stronger than my hatred for my own sin. But you, listen, when I read this text, When I think about what Christ suffered, I am reminded that my sin is just as big of a deal as anybody else's sin. And that Jesus Christ, he suffered, listen, the wrath of God 
was poured upon his sinless son, Jesus Christ. Jesus bore my sin. In other words, it was, it was my sin that sometimes I tolerate and sometimes I excuse and I think it is not that big of a deal and yet it was my sin that nailed Jesus Christ to that cross. And it was your sin as well. Jesus suffered not on account of his own sin, but he suffered on account of my sin. The third and final thing that we discover here in Isaiah 53 is this particular text that reveals the accomplishment of his suffering in verses 10 to 12. The accomplishment of his suffering. I discover three things that his suffering accomplished according to our text. I'd say number one, it accomplished this, that his suffering pleased the Lord. Would you look in verse number 10? Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Matthew Henry wrote these words, that Jesus submitted to the frowns of heaven Even in suffering, Christ was submissive and he was obedient to the will of his Father. That's why why he was pleasing to the Lord. The Bible says in Philippians 2 and verse number 8, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Here's why that's significant. See, God is not willing, according to 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish. And because he's not willing that any should perish, it became necessary for something extreme to redeem mankind. You see, the blood of bulls and goats that was offered throughout the pages of the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats, it could never officially wash away man's sin. All of that was being done. Listen, all of that was being done in in, in an effect in which we're looking ahead and we're believing by doing this that Christ, the the, the Lamb of God, the sinless Lamb of God, He is going to come. And as a result, God, God, God rolled the sins away for another year and for another year and for another year. But listen, the blood of bulls and goats can't wash away sin. The blood of of some animal cannot wash away sin. All of that was type. It was picture. The Bible says that only Christ and his blood can purge and can purify. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, verses 12 to 14, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifying to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Listen, not only, not only can the blood of an animal not wash away sin, but listen, your blood can't wash away sin either. You see, your blood is tainted. Your blood is, is sinful blood, and so is mine. And that's why it became necessary that Jesus come, that he was born of a virgin. That way he did not have his father's blood, his earthly father's blood flowing or coursing through his veins. No, no, no. Jesus was different from you and I. His blood was different uh, from our blood. And Jesus Christ hung on that cross, and the blood dripped from his body. And with that blood, through God's eternal spirit, he purges us and he redeems us. And unless, unless the blood of Jesus Christ has covered your sin and has washed away your sin, then you are not saved today. So long as you're counting on your good works, well, that's sort of like counting on the blood of some animal to save you. That blood can never save you. You're counting on the fact that you go to church on Sunday. Well, that's not going to save anybody. 
You're counting on the fact that you got in that water up there and you were baptized. Can I let you in on a little secret? That water, that water comes right out of Lake Erie. There is nothing holy about it whatsoever. It's just normal water. Uh, you're, you're, you're counting on the fact that you sat in a service and you drank some grape juice and you ate a, a piece of cracker. Well, lots of people have done that. Since when does eating some food or drinking some drink save our souls? It doesn't. The only way, the only way that you can be saved is by believing in the shed blood of God's own son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, listen, as he hung on that cross, he pleased the Lord. Why? Because, because, because God is not willing that any should perish. And by, G, by Jesus going to that cross, it was pleasing to God because the two are working together in order that we might be saved. You see, Christ's willingness and obedience to endure the Father's wrath, it pleased the Lord because it made possible the fulfillment of the Father's will that none perish but that all have the opportunity to be saved. And that's why it pleased the Lord. Don't misunderstand what's happening here. God is not sitting in heaven thrilled that his son is suffering. I was thinking about that this morning for just a moment. I have a son and I have three daughters. As a parent, you love your children with all of your heart. And all you want, all you want is for your children to be well. That's all you want. Some of you, you carry some of the heaviest burdens known to man. And it's because your children aren't well. Or maybe your grandchildren aren't well. They're not in a good place and you know it. And you're so burdened for them. And you pray for them. And you love on them and you do everything in your power to set them up for success. And yet they're not experiencing it and it breaks your heart. Please don't misunderstand what's happening in this text. God is not sitting in heaven rubbing his hands with glee. This is wonderful. My son is suffering. This pleases me. No, no, that, that didn't. The suffering of Christ, that, that's not what pleased the Lord. What pleased the Lord was Christ's willingness to endure that suffering. What pleased the Lord is that, is that God knew that because of what Christ was doing, he knew, listen, he knew 2,000 years from that point, there'd be some people sitting in the Cleveland Baptist Church whose lives have been radically changed because they believed on Jesus. He, he, he was pleased because he knew some 2,000 years removed, someone might sit in a service just like this one and hear a message from Isaiah chapter number 53, and it would finally connect with them. Hold on a minute. Christ's suffering was for me, and in that service, the Holy Spirit of God would move in their midst. And though they've maybe been a good person, and though they maybe attended church from time to time, and they've done some good works, they realize and they understand without the blood of Christ, I am doomed to spend eternity in a place the Bible calls hell and God was pleased he was pleased because through Christ being bruised you and I can be saved that's what pleased the Lord Jesus' obedience his willingness to go to the cross and to suffer these things that's what pleased the Lord notice not only that his suffering pleased the Lord that's an accomplishment of it but his suffering listen it justifies those who believe would you look in verse number 11 he shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his, by his knowledge, shall my righteous servant justify many. By his knowledge. You know what he's saying here? He's saying this. When people stop for just a moment, they stop for just a moment, and they think, really think this thing through, and they understand just what it is that Christ suffered and how he suffered, and they begin to make the connection in their mind, it's almost like a light bulb goes off in their head. I, I've talked to people 
over the years who um, I've asked them, do you know for sure that heaven is your home? Do you know for sure that if you're to die today, you're going to be with God in heaven? And many times, many times the answer is, I hope so or I think so. And then I'll ask them, I'll ask them a, a question like this. I'll say, well, what are you, what are you hoping in? What are you, what are you thinking is, is sufficient to, to earn you or to get you an eternal home in heaven? And sometimes they'll say things like, well, I, I was baptized. Or, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a church member at this church. Or I, I'm, I'm a really good person. I, you know, I, I've not spent any time in jail. I've, you know, I, I've, I'm still married to my, you know, my first wife or my first husband or, you know, any number of things. You know, I, I took communion. I went through a class when I was this age or that age. I have, to be, I have to be gentle about this because I don't want to you know, offend, certainly I don't want to offend anybody. But then I'll, I'll look at them and I'll say, let me ask this question. If, if those things could wash away your sins, if your baptism, if your church membership, if your good works, if the fact that your marriage, if that's, if that's what could get you to heaven, then tell me, tell me why. Why did Jesus have to come? Why did Jesus have to suffer? And, and when they begin to think about it, by, by that knowledge, Hold on a minute. As I see him hanging on that cross, as I see the, the life slowly flowing out of him, as I see the, the, the beating that he suffered and that he endured, as I see his lifeless body being removed from that cross and being wrapped in linen and being placed in a borrowed tomb, if, if I could get to heaven through some baptism or through some good work or through some good thing that I have done, why in the world would he have had to come and die? And when you make that connection, Oh, when that knowledge enters into your mind and it, furthermore it enters into your heart, you realize once and for all, oh, listen, Jesus did all of that for me. And these, these man-made things that we have sometimes established, that we have set up, you have to do this and you have to do that, you've got to do that, none of those things are sufficient to wash away a single sin. But the blood of Jesus Christ washes away every single sin that you have ever committed and every single sin you will ever commit. The Bible says in Romans 5 and verse number 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our baptism, through our church membership, through our good works, through the fact that I'm still married to the same person that I've always been married to. No, no. We have, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's through him. It's through knowledge of him that anyone is justified. The Bible goes on to say in verse number nine, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Listen, the baptistry waters don't save anybody from wrath. The communion, the communion cup doesn't save anybody from wrath. Oh, the things that are represented in those things, but, th but that's, that's the belief of the heart. It's not those works that save anybody Membership at Cleveland Baptist Church doesn't save anybody from wrath. Dressing up on a Sunday, carrying a Bible in the church, it doesn't save anybody from wrath. None of those things. Paying your taxes, staying out of jail, you know, good job, right? I mean, like, that's like the lowest common denominator. I mean, I'd hope you'd stay out of jail, and I'd hope you pay your taxes and do what you're supposed to do. That doesn't save anybody from wrath. But the blood of Christ does. Oh, the blood and the suffering of Jesus Christ saves us from wrath. Finally and lastly, his suffering. His suffering highly exalted him. Would you look in verse number 12? Therefore, because of this, because of what he endured, because of what he did, 
Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. You know what God said? God said, you know what? Because you did all of these things, speaking to the suffering Savior, speaking about the suffering Savior, the Father in heaven said, because of that, I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to give you so much more than anyone could possibly imagine. As Christ comes to the end of his suffering, the Bible tells us that he emerges victorious over death and over hell and over the power of the grave. He returns to his father some 40 days removed at his ascension. And the Bible says that he sits down at the right hand of the father. And at that point, listen, God highly exalts him and gives him a name which is above every name. Philippians chapter number two, the Bible says, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, without, without what he endured, without his suffering, there, there is no name above every name. There is no bowing Things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. Oh, none, none, none of that takes place. But, but because our suffering Savior endured these things, because he went through these things, God says, here's the reward. Here's the, the, here's the accomplishment. Here's how I'm going to exalt you because of what you were willing to endure. As we conclude this morning, I want to ask this question. Is the suffering Savior your Savior? Is he? Has his blood washed away your sin? The Bible is clear that by his knowledge he shall justify many. But has he justified you? Oh, he is more than capable of saving anyone in this room, no matter who you are and no matter what you've done. You must simply acknowledge him. Acknowledge that you're a sinner and that your sin demanded that in order for it to be paid for, in order for it to be covered, in order for you to be saved, the Savior, Jesus Christ, had to suffer in this way. Is the suffering Savior your Savior? How about those of you in which you say, yes, that is true. He is my Savior. Have you believed in Jesus to save you from your sin, and yet slowly you've drifted back into some sin? I, I really believe that Isaiah 53 was not just written to point us to Christ, but I also believe it was written to remind us of what he endured Amen. so that we look at our sin with, with much more severity and in a, in a much less haphazard and casual way. We stop to think, well, hold on a minute. By continuing down that path, I am reveling in the very thing in which Christ suffered and died for. May God help us as believers. May this text revealing the suffering of Christ be a reminder of the severity of our sin. 